Hey folks, this is Rabbi David Foreman. I am interrupting your regularly scheduled Into the Verse episode today because I wanted to personally tell you about a new podcast we're doing. It's called A Book Like No Other. This new podcast is actually very near and dear to my heart. On it, I'll be sharing some of my latest research with you into the texts that are really the most captivating to me, at least at this moment. And I'm inviting you into a little bit of a journey of discovery with me. You know, most of the presentations that I share with you on Into the Verse or on Aleph Beta itself, they're actually just the tip of the iceberg of research that really goes much deeper than that, uncovers many more layers of resonance and meaning of the text than what we get to show you. We end up leaving a lot on the cutting room floor. So I'm really thrilled to be able to offer you this new show, A Book Like No Other, where we're putting all those regular restraints aside. You know, this isn't uh, Parsha-based. It isn't even really topic-based. It's about diving into the Torah, into this remarkable book, with really no restraints or expectations and letting it carry us where the text carries us. The first episode, we've just finished putting it together, and in a few minutes, I'm actually going to be letting you get a sneak peek of that. We'll be playing it for you right here. Now, don't worry if you're an Into the Verse fan. Your regular Into the Verse episodes will still be coming your way. You'll get them later this week. But first, I hope you'll enjoy this taste of this new podcast, a book like no other. I actually also hope that you'll keep listening to it as the journey continues. If you're intrigued by episode one, you can find and follow episode two by searching for it in your podcast feed. Wherever you get your podcast, just look for a book like no other, or you can click on the link in our show notes. Without further ado, here's episode one. first piece of the process is just a little thing that you notice. You're looking at this text, and you're just tra-la-la reading through this text, and then you just notice something. It could be something that's incongruous. It could be a word that doesn't quite make sense. Those are the beginning of opening up some windows. Windows which lead us to discover that one second, this book really is a book like no other. This book is designed to open up those layers. And all of a sudden, it's like you're swept away. And it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize I'm talking about some, some of the acute issues that plague modern people in their lives. But I didn't even expect I was going there. The Torah's ability to sweep you from something mundane into something grand is truly breathtaking. It's coming from God, but it's also coming in a way that almost feels godly. Welcome to A Book Like No Other, a podcast about reading the Torah on its own terms. Hi, I'm your host, Imu Shalev, and the voice you just heard belongs to my teacher and lead scholar of Aleph Beta, my friend, Rabbi David Foreman. Each season on this podcast, Rabbi Foreman and I will be exploring a Torah text of his choice. Our only goal? Taking the type of journey Rabbi Foreman just described, noticing the Torah's anomalies, unraveling its patterns, layers, and deep structures, and following wherever that leads— no agenda, no preset topic, no assumed conclusions. It's just us and the text, and you if you want. So let's jump in. Recently, Rabbi Foreman called me. He had some new research on the Garden of Eden, and he wanted to know if I'd learn with him and we could record our sessions. 
maybe even use it for the show. I was psyched. What better text for our inaugural season than the beginning of Torah, the Garden of Eden? It's got intrigue, drama, sin, temptation. But when I sat down with Rabbi Foreman, he didn't want to talk about any of that. He just wanted to talk about trees. Emu, this may seem crazy to you, but I want to talk about the story with you from the perspective of setting only rather than the characters. Interesting. So that, that reminds me of like, you know, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien can spend many, many pages describing the beautiful trees and the mountains. Uh, confession at hand. When I read Lord of the Rings, I skipped a lot of the setting. <laughs> I Thank God of, you said that. I found the Lord of the Rings really, really boring. Right? I did too. And I was like, I'll take the I, movie. How many, I, right. How many times can I read about these trees and the leaves? So here's the thing. The reason why I think the Torah is different is the Torah is actually telling a story in the setting. And that's what I want to try to unearth with you here today. I'm intrigued enough to follow you. If you think there's a story in the setting, I'm with you. Full disclosure, I was intrigued, but I was not with him. How do you pull a story out of a setting? Well, over the next few weeks, Rabbi Foreman would show me. And it turns out my Tolkien analogy was right, just for the opposite reason that I had in mind. Rabbi Foreman was about to take me on an epic adventure, one that would crisscross Genesis, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Joshua, and would change how I understand the garden, its role in the Torah, and honestly, my own life. But we'll get there, because over the next six episodes of this podcast, I'll be sharing that whole journey with you. This episode is just the first step, noticing and questioning all the strange things in the garden we tend to overlook. And Rabbi Foreman had a lot of questions about those trees. Sometimes there are these basic questions, very obvious questions in every biblical story. The elephant in the room. Questions. The elephant in the room questions. So let me lay out for you a couple of these sort of elephant in the room questions that just have to do with the setting of the story. And the first one is this. Imagine you got the story. And you're like this eager seven-year-old child as grandpa sits down on your bed and reads you uh, your bedtime story. So grandpa starts and says, well, once upon a time, there was the almighty God and he created these human beings and he and he made this special garden and it was wonderful and there were all these trees. Um, but Emu, my dear, there were two special trees in the garden. And one of them was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the other was a tree of life. Now, if Emu is curious, even before Grandpa gets to the rest of the story, Emu probably has one of those elephant of the room questions percolating in his mind. So you might come to say, Grandpa, these are very mysterious trees. I don't really associate trees with knowledge of good and evil. It's a whole shelf of philosophy books in your study, Grandpa, that deal with good and evil. If I wanted to learn about good and evil, I would go there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go look at a tree. And also, very strangely, you're talking about trees of life. Um, I know what a huckleberry tree is. I have a cherry tree that I heard George Washington once cut down. But a tree of life is a strange way of classifying a tree. So Grandpa might say, yes, Emu, well, the trees are very mysterious and just get used to it. But it doesn't sound like Grandpa has got a very good story going. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then, you know, imagine Emu complains to Mom, like, I don't, I don't want Grandpa to come back tomorrow. He's a nice guy, but I don't think he's such a good storyteller. Right? And mom, I love how the, the seven-year-old version of me is a literary the, critic. Exactly. And yeah. there's something unsatisfying about the story. The, you know, everything's got to hang together in a story. But there's a quality of randomness with these two trees. What in mm. the world is the connection between 
a tree of knowledge and a tree of life. The thing that bothers me is not just that I've never met a tree of knowledge of an evil and a tree of life. That's true. Right. The dissatisfying part is what in the world would one have to do with the other? Right. It's sort of like I could see where the story's going if you said that, you know, one was the tree of happiness and one was the tree of sadness. Exactly. Right. So those are opposites. Tree of knowledge, good and evil. Tree of life, super random. I don't really see where the story is going if that's the name of the trees. Right. I don't know. Feels to me like an important question to ask, but it's one of those questions I would have never asked. So that was Rabbi Foreman's first question. Why a tree of life and a tree of knowledge? Those themes seem to have nothing to do with trees or with each other. And that question prompted me to ask one of my own. Can I can I say what the what the question makes me think of? Yep. Like now now that you mention it, it, it I think kind of growing up knowing this story, I almost forget about the tree of life. Because the story ends up centering around the tree of knowledge of evil so much that it's making me even wonder, like, why is the tree of life in this story? And that's another good question. What is the function of the tree of life? Um, and maybe we can even throw in, what is the function of each tree? What is the function of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And what is the function of the tree of life? As Chekhov once famously said, if there's a rifle on the mantle in the beginning of Act 1, it's got to go off by the end of Act 3. You can't just have a random rifle in the story that's there without any meaning. Meaning, even if we accept Grandpa's premise that there just is a tree of life and a tree of knowledge in this garden, and even if we accept that maybe these trees aren't all that connected to each other, at least we should be able to make sense of each tree's individual role in the story. But good luck with that. Let's start with the tree of life that, that you mentioned. The tree of life seems to be the odd man out in the story. It seems to have been... Narratively irrelevant. Narratively irrelevant. You could eliminate that tree quite easily and just have one special tree. It's a tree of knowledge, good and evil. You're not supposed to eat from it. And we get tempted to eat from it. We get banished from the garden. End of story. How is the story enriched by having this other tree there? It's just hanging around at the edges, not really doing anything. To support this point, Rabbi Foreman makes a surprising observation. Well, at least surprising to me. Adam and Eve are never told about the tree of life. It's interesting, you read the whole story, and God never even reveals them the tree is there. It's like, it was irrelevant, so why do I, the reader, need to know about it? I didn't even realize that. That's actually, I, the first time I noticed, they weren't told that both trees are there. They were never told. Interesting. So in their command, they're told, hey, don't eat from the tree of knowledge. Let's actually go to the command, and, and I'll just read it to you in case anybody doesn't trust me on this. This is verse uh, 16 in chapter 2. And God commanded man, saying, From all the trees of the garden you shall surely eat. But this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. On the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. That's the whole command. No tree of life. And right here, this is when I start to understand what Rabbi Foreman meant earlier about the setting having its own story. The Torah is saying, pay attention to this tree of life, reader. It is visible to you, is less visible to the protagonists in the story, mm-hmm. but that's part of the story of this tree. Fascinating. Just as that insight is sinking in, Rabbi Foreman points out something else about the tree of life I'd never noticed before. And just to complicate matters, what's God's attitude about man eating from the tree of life? The only tree he says you can eat from is the tree of knowledge. And it's not just that. The introduction of that verse is, is eat, surely eat from all the trees, just not the tree of knowledge. So 
I think uh, you'd have a, a slam dunk defense in a court case if you got sued for this is, no, 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 I actually got permission to eat from all the trees explicitly except for the tree of, of knowledge, which means you can eat from the tree of life. I never realized that. Yeah, so it sounds like totally fine to eat from the tree of life. Well, welcome to the end of the story. At the very end of the story, in chapter three, we find that after man disobeys, eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he's kicked out of the garden. And I say to you, Emu, why is he kicked out of the garden? The answer is not just because he did the wrong thing. He's kicked out of the garden because of a fear that God expresses. In chapter 3, verse 22, and I'll read the verse for you, Bayom Rasham Elohim, and the Lord God said, Now mankind's become just like one of us, knowing good and evil. And here comes the concern. And now, hmm. lest he stretch forth his hand and he eat from the tree of life and he eat it and he live forever. So it seems like God doesn't want him to eat from the tree of life, even though he didn't forbid him from eating from the tree of life. Which seems strangely contradictory. Not only did he not forbid him to eat from the tree of life, but as you said, God commanded him to eat from all the trees, hmm. save one which sounds like there was a command, at least implicitly, that includes eating from the tree of life, and that's a good thing. And all of a sudden, it's a bad thing, so bad that man needs to be expelled from the garden. Mm -hmm. Now, there's maybe ways to deal with this question. I did struggle with this question in The Beast That Crouches at the Door, put out mm -hmm. in 2007. I suggested then that perhaps God's attitude towards the tree of life changes. Maybe mm. in the beginning, God's like, sure, eat from the tree of life, but that's implicitly as long as you keep the rest of my commands. Once you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, my attitude changes. Could be, but it doesn't feel like a slam dunk answer. If you read that verse in chapter 322, to me, the sense of that verse is he's already done one thing wrong. What if he does this second terrible thing wrong? In other words, man has shown his propensity to rebel. What if he rebels further and eats from the tree of life, which sounds like it was always a problem to eat from the tree of life. I just never imagined that man would do it, which seems inconsistent with the beginning of the story. So the tree of life seems to make absolutely no sense. The Tree of Life might have made no sense, but it was certainly no longer forgettable. We're told about it, Adam and Chava aren't. Humans can eat from it, no they can't. It's like after all this hullabaloo around the Tree of Knowledge, God perks up and goes, oh wait, this tree does matter. The exile from Eden kinda hinges on it. So I still had my original question, why is this tree here? But now it wasn't, why bother with this tree? Now it was more like, tell me your secrets, Tree of Life. Okay, so those were our questions on the Tree of Life. We're going to move now to the Tree of Knowledge. Let's come back to the second side of the question which you asked. If I asked you, Emu, what's the function of the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil? Why is it here in the story? I mean, it's the forbidden tree. It's the forbidden tree, right? Every story needs a villain. Every story <laughs> needs an obstacle. So you could say that sort of from the storytelling perspective, but if I drilled down a little bit deeper... Uh, I sort of have a theological problem which nags at me. And, you know, in teaching the story of the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil many, many times over the last 20 years to many different audiences, it's a question that consistently comes up for me and that I never really had a, a completely wonderful answer to. Why would God put a tree that he doesn't want you to eat from in the middle of the garden? 
It's a nisayon. Right. It's a test. And then you get to the problem that what I really want to worship a god who puts this delicious chocolate chip cookie right in the middle of the garden and then waits at the edges of the kitchen to see if little Junior is going to sneak a crumb from it and then gets really mad at him. And especially because the name of the tree doesn't make it sound like the kind of thing which should be off limits, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, if it was a tree of villainy and the terror. knowledge of raping and, and pillaging. Right? It was a tree of incest and murder, right? So then, sure, like, don't eat from the tree of incest and murder. But for God's sake, it's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Hmm. Sounds like a really good thing to have. I, I always love the, the version of this question you, you asked a few years ago, which is, what do you call a person who lives next door to you? Let's call him Bob, right? And he's a, uh, your neighbor. He's a lawyer, comes home, grills on the barbecue, um, only thing about Bob you need to know is that he doesn't have a knowledge of good and evil, right? What would you call a guy like that? Right? The name that you call for someone who doesn't have a, a knowledge of good and evil is a psychopath, right? <laughs> Today he's barbecuing, you know, uh, hamburgers on the grill. Tomorrow might maybe he'll barbecue you. Who knows? He doesn't have a knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> That's right. Bob is not a good neighbor. Absolutely true. Yeah, so it's a good question. Why does God want to withhold knowledge of good and evil from his creations? And even if we grant that he does, why would he stick the source of that knowledge, which let's just remind ourselves is very weirdly a tree, right there under Adam and Chava's noses? So not only do the trees seem random as a pair, but each one individually is also fraught. If you're itching to start solving the problems we've raised, I get it, so was I. But Rabbi Foreman had one last question to share, and this one was the most bewildering of all. Okay, Emu, so here's my next question, having to do with the relationship between these two trees. Um, and the way I'm going to suggest this question to you is we're going to do a little role-playing game, okay? We're going to actually go through this story, um, The Temptation of Eve, and I would like you to play Snake and I'm going to play Eve. And I think you're going to see pretty quickly that this story goes off the rails in a remarkable way. This is a, a role I was born for. <laughs> the, okay, so let's go to uh, chapter three for a moment. The snake, that's you, Emu, was very sly, um, much more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. And he strikes up a conversation with Eve. You know, did God really say don't eat from all the trees of the garden? It's patently untrue, but you're just trying to start a conversation. So Eve, I'll play Eve, Eve is taken off guard and says, oh, no, 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 snake. You don't understand me. Pre, it's a gun, no hell. We can totally eat from all the trees of the garden. There's just one tree we can't eat from. You, snake, have been lying in wait for this point, right? You're waiting here for her to say what words. Oh, no, snake. It's just which tree can't we eat from? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. But what's fascinating is if you look at verse 3, she refuses to identify the tree that way. And here's what she says. It's just the tree that's in the middle of the garden. It's that tree that God said don't eat from. She does not name it by its qualities, which is how we have primarily come to know these trees. We've been introduced to them by God, by their names. And when God forbids the tree, he actually says, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's the tree that you must not eat from. But here, when it actually comes time for it to eat from it, she chooses to identify it a different way. Oh, that's crazy. I'd never noticed that Eve doesn't name the tree of knowledge as the forbidden tree. 
It just goes to show you how quickly we fill in the gaps for ourselves when reading Tanakh. All these years, I read Eve telling the snake she can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden and just jumped to the conclusion that that meant the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Makes sense, right? But is that really a safe assumption to make? Now, here's the question. If you're the snake, it's like one second all the Eve, like uh, which tree are you talking about when you say the tree that's in the middle of the garden? So let's go back to our geography manual. Where is our geography manual? For that, we actually have a verse, the verse that describes the placement of the special trees in the garden. That's back in the last chapter, chapter 2, verse 9. And what does it say? Just read the text. It says, The tree of life is in the is in the middle of the gan veitzadas tovarav. The tree of life in the middle of the garden, and there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't quite know where that is, but it's, it seems from verse nine that it is ambiguous as to where the tree of knowledge is. Could be that it's in the middle of the garden, could be that it's not. But the one that's unambiguously in the middle of the garden is the tree of life. So if she uses the word betochagan to identify which tree she can't eat from. It seems like she's saying she can't eat from the tree of life. Um, or, or she doesn't know where the tree of knowledge is. It's very confusing. It leaves open the question that maybe Eve doesn't know what she's talking about. So was Eve just confused? Was she mistaking the tree of knowledge for the tree of life? But here's the even weirder thing. The text doesn't portray her as confused. The snake doesn't respond to her as if she's got the tree wrong. Maybe if Eve really is mistaken, then the snake has a has a, a great opportunity. If his job is to get her to eat from the tree of knowledge, he could take an unsuspecting Eve, just walk her over to the tree of knowledge and say, here's this tree, and she thinks she's allowed to eat from it. Or if the snake's job is to get her to willfully transgress God's commands, then the snake's uh, mission is imperiled by the fact that she thinks that the tree that she's not allowed to eat from is the tree of life. That he, he should be telling her something like, oh, um, actually, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about a, a different <laughs> tree, uh, the, the tree that you're not supposed to eat. Let me, let me just give you a primer, Eve, on the tree that you're not supposed to eat from before I tell you why you're supposed to eat from it. Come, let's eat from the tree over there. But the snake never says, let's eat from the tree over there. They keep on having this conversation about the tree that's betochagan. If you wanted me to be clear that Eve was eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then back when he gave the locations of the tree, the one unambiguous tree that was betochagan should have been the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, if I were like the angelic editor of God, right, after he finishes the first draft of... Uh of Genesis, you know, one, two, and three, I, I would come back and say, hey, God, there's, there's an issue. You know, you have Eve identifying the tree as betochagan, but you use that word betochagan. Everyone's going to think that she thinks the tree that's forbidden is the tree of life because that's the one that's clearly referred to as betochagan. He is misidentifying the trees, right? Yeah. So, you know, let's just take stock of our questions. What's the deal with the garden with these two special trees in it? that seem to have nothing to do with each other, a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Rabbi Foreman's second question. Um, what's the function of each tree? The tree of life seems superfluous. It just seems to get in the way. Tree of life just confuses me. Tree of knowledge also confuses me. Why should I not be allowed to eat from a tree of knowledge of good and evil? Sounds like such a great thing to have. And finally, last but not least. Eve seems to misidentify the tree. It seems like the tree that's for sure in the middle of the garden is the one that they can't eat from. And back in chapter two, that's the tree of life. So we're quite confused, thoroughly confused. 
by uh, the basic setting of this garden. Indeed. Confused. <laughs> right? Confused we are. I, I'm squirming uncomfortably in my seat. So you've taken from me uh, the earliest and oldest of the stories in Tanakh, and I need it back. So <laughs> I'm excited for, for how you're going to answer some of these. Hopefully uh, we'll come back and, and, and find some comfort. I think all of these maddening questions are leading up to a story that the setting is telling us about the two trees. I'm with you for the quest, wherever it may lead. Excellent. After this session, I kept wondering how I'd missed all these glaring problems with the garden all of these years. I got now why Rabbi Foreman wanted us to focus on the setting. It's so easy to get caught up in the drama of biblical stories, but the details are where you find a lot of its treasures. And now, I couldn't stop thinking about those trees. Eden was our first home, ground zero for the Torah and for creation. But we barely got to look around. What would we find if we could go back? What would we learn about ourselves? I really wanted to know. Only now, there were all these big, giant question marks blocking the view. Next time on A Book Like No Other, we start getting some answers. Rabbi Foreman's going to introduce a single, elegant theory that will help solve these problems we've been grappling with and, in the process, paint a very unexpected picture of what Eden actually looked like. And strangely, the big evidence for this theory on the beginning of the Torah lies all the way at the Torah's end. You won't want to miss it, so make sure to subscribe. And hey, while you're at it, please share this podcast with a friend. If you liked it, maybe they will too. It really helps new people discover us. A Book Like No Other is a product of Aleph Beta, a nonprofit dedicated to helping people fall in love with Torah. Visit alephbeta.org for hundreds of more deep dive audios and beautifully animated videos on nearly every biblical text. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll find a lot there that speaks to you. This episode was recorded by Rabbi David Foreman and me, Imu Shalev. It was edited by Tikva Hecht with additional edits by Evan Wiener. Audio editing was done by Hilary Gutman. A Book Like No Other's senior editor is Tikva Hecht. Adina Blaustein keeps all the parts moving. Hey, this is Ari Levison. Just jumping in to remind you that your regular episode of Into the Verse for Parsha B'Shalach will be in this feed tomorrow. In the meantime, go check out A Book Like No Other. You just heard episode one, so I don't even have to tell you how awesome it is. There's a link to that in the show notes. I'll see you later.